always excited to talk a little bit more about heaven, and, and we're going to do that again today. We're in Revelation 21. I encourage you to join me there. When you think about the things that the Lord has given to you, Scripture says that uh, our Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for you. Not just a glorious phrase just to think about. He gave himself for us. Then it goes on to add in scriptures, and how much more will he freely give us all things? Now, you don't need to answer this one. You could do it in your own, your heart, and I could see it on your face. How much did you pay for your house? How much does heaven cost? How many taxes are you going to pay on heaven? Think about this. The Lord has said he gives us all things. We're talking about something he's giving to you. You will spend eternity with him in this place. What a glorious, glorious thing we have in front of us. We're going to talk about that even as we wrap up our thoughts here this morning. But this is not a fairy tale. This is not just some sort of, uh, uh, boy, I wish it would really come about, that'd be nice kind of sermon. Uh, But these are things that the Lord has said will be. And as we study it, we ought to know these things, right? After all, it's where you're going to spend eternity. Don't you want to know a little bit more? That's what we've been doing. And I know some of the things that we've come through with our study here. It might have been a surprise to you, maybe even a small shock to the system to think, well, that's not the way I always thought. Um, I just intend to share with you what I see God saying right there in His Word without uh, uh, imagination too much, I guess, without embellishing as, as a, uh, some people like to do, without my imagination just rolling. Uh, it's just what God has said. And that's what we're going to see again here in chapter 21 of Revelation. And uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer as we get started. Gracious Lord, we're talking about uh, what you have done. We're talking about what you will do in this place we call heaven. And I pray, Lord, that uh, again, you will guide us through our study here today. There is much for us to to understand. And uh, we pray, Lord, that it will... Activate our hearts to worship and praise of you. Uh, bring us back again to our understanding that these things are true. And since they are true, we ought to live in light of those. And I pray, Lord, you might challenge us today as well. as Teach us from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. The three themes that I have from chapter 21 and 22, there are three of them, dealing with the believer... The believer and the presence of God. We dealt with that a little bit last week in the first seven verses. Uh, the believer and the city of God is where we're going to enter into today in uh, verse 9 through 27. And into chapter 22, uh, we're going to see the believer and his service to God. And that's, uh, that's the goal I have for the next uh, week as well. So, as I've been putting things together, you are, you are aware now that I am presenting to you that heaven has two different, if you will, places. There is a present heaven now, 
and there is a new heaven coming. Those are two distinct places. They aren't meant to be just one wrapped up in the other. As, as I understand it, we're not getting a, a renewed, refurbished, uh, rebuilt uh, uh, kind of earth, but we're getting a new one, a new heaven and a new earth. That's the way it starts Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the present heaven is the one we talk about a lot. That's the one that generally has our attention and generally has all the characteristics of the new heaven in our thinking. Because that's the way we usually picture heaven as just one place. And as a result of that, uh, when we think of the present heaven, uh, I worked this through and I think I have most of the descriptions in front of me here. Uh, The present heaven is a place where God's throne is. That is true. It is a place where the true temple is, and that is true. It has an emerald rainbow around the throne. I bring that up every time I talk about it, because I can't wait to see that thing. An emerald rainbow around the throne. It has a sea of glass in it as well. A sea that looks like glass. Uh, it has many rooms in it. We call them mansions. But that's what the Lord has gone to prepare for us. And it is a temporary place. I underscore that. The old heavens and the old earth will pass away. Scripture tells us that. And we we need to keep this in perspective as we think it through. The present heaven is limited. Just like this earth. It's limited. It doesn't last forever. God is creating one that will. Uh, And if the rapture should occur, we will go to be there in the present heaven. And we will spend seven years in the present heaven during the tribulation period. We will return with the Lord down to this earth because wherever He is, we will be, right? And we will spend the next thousand years in the millennial reign of Christ here on this earth with our Savior. After that is the judgments, the heavens and the earth. These present ones will dissolve. They will be gone. They will flee from the presence of the Lord and... uh, then he will create the heaven and new, the new heaven and earth. That's the, the process that we've been walking through in our study here. I find it rather fascinating. Uh, and so, when we get into chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, we are actually talking about the new heaven. Alright? And that's important for us to keep this in, in our understanding. It's the new heaven and the new earth that we are discussing in these passages. And one more thing that might that might uh, be important to our, our, uh, our particulars here. The description that we're going to walk through today, that we're so accustomed to, the streets of gold and the pearly gates and all these other things, are describing the New Jerusalem, which is another place as well. There are three, and it mentions them right away in the verse number one and two. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I believe that heaven here, new heaven, is different than the new earth. They're not the same place. And I also believe that the new Jerusalem is different than the new heaven and the new earth. He's referencing three locations here. All right? 
I'm going to spell that out as we go. But this, this experience that we're going to have uh, will be understood, as he describes it here, in, in a lot of, of interesting ways. Where we left off last week, back in chapter 21, verse number 4, let's start with that new experience we're going to have. The new experience says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. After all, they were part of the old earth, right? The old heaven, that system. And they passed away. We have that already referenced for us in the text here. They passed away. But the question is raised, and many people do raise this anyway, um, what about this phrase, he will wipe every tear from their eyes? Does that mean uh, um when we go, say we die today and we go up to heaven, that we no longer have tears. Uh, throughout the present heaven, there's no longer tears. Into the new heaven, there's no longer tears. Or does this start with the new heaven, that there's no longer tears? Kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Because as I look through this, I, I see those words, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's in chapter 21. Right? Okay. Uh, if we go back to several other verses, I'll just read you one from Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That same phrase in Isaiah 25 there, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away for all faces. The timing, it seems to me like every time the timing is referred to about the tear issue, it's always in reference to the fact that death is taken away. Death is taken away. He said it there. The timing seems to correspond with that. Um, here in Revelation 21, what's missing all of a sudden? We back up two verses in chapter 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Death is gone all of a sudden, right? And what's the next thing he does into chapter 21? Verse 4, wipes every tear from their eyes. They say, okay, what's all that mean? Uh, generally, when we think of heaven, we think of a place where we're free from anything that's negative, right? That sounds wonderful. Anything negative, it's all gone. Um, Crying is thought of to be negative, especially for young men, right? Don't cry. Young men don't cry. Uh, older men learn to cry again. I've noticed that over the years. We learn to cry after all. Did Jesus ever cry? Was it wrong for him to do so? You say, no, okay. Who created that emotion? God did, didn't he? Okay, let's put this in perspective just for a minute. We have reasons for crying, don't we? Something hits your thumb, you might cry. You, you lose somebody that you love, you, you might cry in that too. Uh, the emotions we show, they're God-given emotions. And when we enter into the place called heaven, won't all of these emotions be at their peak the best they can possibly be? Does that mean he's going to remove half the emotions from us? I think he still possesses every single one that he talks about. 
Does God concern himself with our tears? Well, here's one for you. Psalm 56, verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now, that's an intriguing kind of question too, isn't it? It almost makes you picture something, doesn't it? God has a little shelf up there. And there's your name on this bottle, and guess what he's keeping? You ever picture it that way? God keeps our... Why would he do that? Well, if it's a literal concept, uh, some people say, well, maybe it's not literal. But the idea is, he cares, doesn't he? And emotions are, are not negative to him. Especially the emotion of tears. It's not a negative thing, you see? God doesn't consider it that way. Now, if I go through marching through this, and I know I'm off on a bit of a rabbit trail, but this I think is kind of interesting. Go back to Revelation 6 for a minute. I want to show you several instances where God wipes tears from the face of those who are in heaven. Alright? In Revelation chapter 6, verse number 9, this is among the first set of seal judgments. They, they were probably right within the first couple, uh, maybe months of the tribulation period. It says in verse 9, And the Lamb broke the fifth seal, and I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. Here's a picture already of tribulational saints who are martyred. And notice where they're at. It says they are underneath the altar. These are souls of those who have been slain. So they're in the presence of God, aren't they? They're in the presence of God. And it says in verse 10, They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Does it sound like they're uh, kind of emotionally charged right now? Look at what they're asking for. But something kind of intriguing that goes along with that. How long, O oh Lord? The word that they cry out with a loud voice, the Greek word for that is the sound of a raven's screech. It's not the soft, gentle you know, asking a question, crying out for help. This is screeching sounds that they're expressing. How long, O oh Lord, how long will you hold back your judgment? Now, hold that thought and go to chapter 7, and here's the same group. Chapter 7, verse 17. Well, let's, let's back up. Uh, Verse number 13. There's a whole group standing around singing salvation to the Lord. And in verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes, and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God. And they serve him night or day and night in his temple, and he sits on the throne. Uh, he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. 
For the Lamb is the center of the throne, will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of water of life. And, what do you say? And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. We just saw them crying out for justice. God says, I could do that. I'll take care of that. They're singing praise to Him. And what is God doing? Wiping tears. Now, the only way you can wipe tears from their eyes is if it's there in the first place. Right? Intriguing thought, isn't it? You say, well, okay, Pastor, what are you doing with this? Second time you see it is in Revelation 21. Verse number 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Who's going to do that? God will. Notice when it happens. After the death has been removed. You say, okay, what's this mean? Well, um... In the context, chapter 21, we have just followed the section we call the Great White Throne Judgment. It's a frightening, frightening chapter. Chapter 20, as it ends, what is going to do... I don't doubt at all, as I told you a couple weeks ago, that we will witness that judgment. And I do believe it will be an emotional event. Not because we're there for judgment. It won't be uh, an emotion of fear, I don't believe. I don't believe it's, it's uh, such like that. But I do realize that there will be those at that judgment that we have known. I do realize that. And if we reflect, and I know we will, if we reflect conformity to Jesus Christ... What was his opinion of the lost? How many times on this earth did he weep over those who were lost? Didn't he? Is he willing that any should perish? And what's going to take place in front of that throne? Most of the time I think we picture him as an angry God who stands there in front of the throne and and just ushers these people off to eternity without him. But he's completely everything in emotion. And I can't see him being one without the other. In that sense, his compassion does not fail. But they have rejected that. Just like he wept over Jerusalem when they rejected him. I can't help but picture that he might have tears as well at that great judgment. As people are ushered off for eternity to be away from him. And all the emotions in operation at full speed. If we're going to be rejoicing like we say, with all our hearts, perhaps tears are possible. You see what I mean? They could very well be there. We see the results of things around us today and, and the folks in heaven, I don't think that they're immune to what goes on in, in several things like this, mourning, crying. Not that they have that. Not that they're experiencing it like we do here. But there is a day when that's all gone, right? Death will be gone. I just wonder, when I see that he's going to wipe tears away, that's going to be a new experience for us. That would be the last time it's ever needed or ever shown, I think. He will wipe them away. And all these other things will be now new. This is the key to it. Verse number 5, he says, Behold, I make all things new. 
That's all wrapped up with this new heaven and new earth. That's the new that we're going to experience. And then, yes, I'm sure of it, we will go on throughout eternity just in praise and worship of Him. But up to this point, this is the only time He mentions tears, and they do seem to exist right up to this moment. Interesting, though. Maybe I I have it inaccurate, but we'll find out when we get there. It's just an interesting thought. So now I want to talk to you about uh, verse number 5 particularly. Up to this point, John is getting his information from an angel. An angel is telling him, look at this, look at this, John, look at this, John. Hey, John, look at this. You know, and he's, he's observing all of that. All of a sudden, in verse number 5, God talks. I like this verse, and, I, and yeah, I insert a little imagination, all right? Because if you were just sitting there and listening to an angel guide you through everything, and all of a sudden, God himself starts to speak, do you think that might get your attention? All of a sudden, in the midst of all this, he's wrapped up with all the things that we would understand humanly. Crying and tears and pain and you know all these things and what's going to be gone in this new experience. And all of a sudden, he hears a voice, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, if I, if I have this right, you're going to see the voice of God at the first part of Revelation. And now you see it at the last and all the way in between, this angel has been guiding him. All of a sudden this voice comes, Behold, I mean, I think John was stunned. Here's my little imagination, okay? I think he was stunned for a moment, because God all of a sudden says, Now start writing. He's supposed to have been writing the whole time. Maybe he dropped his pencil. All of a sudden, Woo! Pick it up! Come on, John! Right! He can't, what else do you do? All of a sudden you hear the voice of God. You stop dead, right? Just Listen. He says, right, John, right. These words are faithful and true. And then he says in verse 6, He said to me, it is done. Do you like those three little words? Do you know how many times they're really used in Scripture in that sense? Not the exact same words. But at the end of creation, at the end of the sixth day, it was completed, wasn't it? God was pleased with that. And he rested. Another time you heard the words, it is finished. Where was that? It was on a cross. And the work was done where Christ uh, shed his blood for us and our salvation secure. And he says, it is finished. And now, all of a sudden, God speaks. The whole old heaven and earth pass away. The new one is set up. And he says, it is done. You know what he's been aiming for all these years? That day. Now, if we're excited about it, think of how excited he is about this. It is done! What a, what a declaration that will be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of lit water of life without cost. He will overcome. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. We can just stop right there and think about that, can't we? I will be his God. He will be my son. You know, of all the descriptions I could give you of heaven and all the things that are, are so interesting to us and fascinating to us, this one thing just numbs me. This relationship we have with God. With him. 
Are we as excited about seeing Him as we are seeing streets of gold? Do we realize that we're going to live with Him forever? As a pastor, I say, then you better get to know Him. You're going to spend eternity with Him, right? That's an experience that we're going to learn of. That's what he emphasizes here in this first part. In verse number 3, The tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be among them. You can take out the them and put your name in there. As a believer in Christ. God Himself will dwell among you. Wow. That's a big, big experience, isn't it? One we're going to have forever. I like that, especially, just to focus on that. So, that's the initial thing that we notice as we enter into this new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. He doesn't go immediately into the description. He goes into the fact that we're going to be with God. Then he says, oh, by the way, let me tell you about the place too. All right? So now he's going to walk you through the place a little bit and give us a tour of the new Jerusalem. All right? We're going to get the tour of one city. One city. That's what we need to see. Uh, the tour begins in verse number 9. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues, came and spoke to me, saying, Come, here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, like the stone of crystal clear jasper. The description here is going to get way beyond my ability, I have to tell you. Uh, We've got words in our Bibles, good old-fashioned English words we could read here. And we've got descriptions of certain stones and things that we're going to look at here. And they, they fail to describe what this place is like. Understand, whatever I tell you this morning as I describe what I can, it's very, very tiny compared to the reality. It's just the way it is. In verse number 1, he described, well, he told us about the new heaven, right? He did not describe it. He just said, I saw a new heaven. He told us about the new earth. He did not really describe it. He says, and I saw a new earth. And then he mentions there's no longer any sea. Right? Now, some people say, well, that's concerning the earth. The earth has seas in it. The old earth did. New earth, no sea. Okay, maybe. Uh, that could be what it's talking about. Or it could be talking about heaven. Did heaven have a sea in it? Well, it did. A sea of glass, or like glass, we saw referenced earlier. And now it says there's no longer any sea. So, we see some differences popping up. But this new Jerusalem comes down in verse number 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Does this sound like it's, it's going to be absolutely gorgeous? Yeah, you ready? He's going to start describing it in verse number 10. 10 and 11 and on. He's got to describe it now. This is the first impression. I, I think this is fascinating. First, 
is coming down out of heaven. That means it's distinct from it. Even the Greek word, it's separated. It's not the same place. Some people wrap them all up together in their commentaries that these are the one and the same place. That's, it's a different place than heaven. Alright? Heaven exists. This comes down out of heaven. I see that. So it's separated. Uh, the first impression we get, it has the glory of God. It's got a brilliance like crystal clear jasper. Again, that's beyond my ability. I don't see too many jasper things. But this is uh, quite a picture already. Um, it has the glory of God. Verse number 11 says, The brilliance is very costly stone, like the stone of crystal clear jasper. It's got particulars. Verse number 17 and verse 18. We're going to jump ahead for a minute. Describes the walls. He measured its walls, 72 yards. Now, you might have different words in your text, cubics, perhaps. Uh, he measures its walls, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper. city was pure gold, like clear glass. Great and high walls are going to be described to us here in verse number 17 and 18. 72 yards Tall. I tried to fathom that a little bit. Uh, football fields are 100 yards long. But most of the time you're running this way, not that way. So I'm trying to picture up. 72 yards up. And, and so I kind of looked around town thinking, what would be tall? Well, of course, we got elevators over there, right? I don't know how tall. How tall are those? Do you know, Jay? No, I, no idea. I couldn't figure it out either. I even asked Anne. She didn't know. I said, how tall are these elevators out here? Um, maybe 100, 100 feet tall? I don't know. I didn't go out and measure them. But uh, say that they were. They're half the distance. If they were 100 feet tall, these walls are 216 feet tall. That's 72 yards. Niagara Falls is 183 feet tall. And it's bigger than that. You say, wow, pretty impressive walls. Yeah, what are they made out of? Jasper again. That's pretty impressive. Now, you want to get something very interesting about this. You go on to the dimension of the city. Verse 16. The city is laid out as a square. And its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod. Fifteen hundred Miles. Its length, its width, and its height. 1,500 miles. This is a, if you're measuring off the wall, you start working your way around it. 1,500 miles from corner to corner. Four times around. And then go up. 1,500 miles. Now, this picture starts to get rather big. Matter of fact, if you wanted to set this down into the United States and figure out how, how big are you talking, you have to start at the southern point of Texas. And you work your way all the way up into North Dakota before you finish one side of a wall. 
Then you want to stretch it across the other way, of course. So start in Denver. That's a place we're familiar with. Go all the way to Washington, D.C. You've got the, the length of it that way. Make it a giant cube. And then launch it that same height up. Size of the city. Pretty impressive. Very impressive. I was thinking that through and thinking, wow, that's, that's got to be big. He mentions gates, verse 12. It had a great and high wall. Yeah, we're convinced of that. With twelve gates. The gates, twelve angels, and the name were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Well, picture the gates now. If you put three gates on each wall, because he goes on to say the next verse, that means there's about 375 miles between each gate. And the word for gate is not just the simple little word for gate. We're talking about a fortress gate. And if the walls are as big as they are, you can only imagine how big the gates are. And verse 21 says that the gates were each made of a single pearl. Whoa. (laughs) Like I said, it's way beyond me now. A single pearl. We're not looking at a little place now, are we? This is a city. That will come down out of heaven and will involve the new earth and the new heaven. And this city is the new Jerusalem. It's got foundation stones. Foundation stones. By the way, the foundation stones go under the wall apparently. And so if you've got 6,000 miles of wall, you've got 6,000 miles of foundation stone, right? 6,000 miles. For each of these foundations, and there were 12 of them, and he starts to define them, or describe them in verse 19. The first one was Jasper. That's an interesting phrase, it keeps popping up. Second one was Sapphire. Wow, you start to get into some fascinating, fascinating pictures here. The fourth one I like is Emerald. I've got a thing for Emerald, obviously. Here it is again, an Emerald Foundation. He starts talking about all the rest here too. All the way into verse number 20 uh, as well. Are you impressed? It is. It's a fascinating thing. So this week, try to draw a picture of it. You're going to need a lot of crayons. Alright? Just to get the concept of what this place is described as. Still, stunning in its description. And it's meant to be stunning to us. And you may say, well, this, this is a little hard to understand. And imagine John trying to write this. He's told, write this down, John. And he said, wow, okay. So he's writing what he can see. He's describing it. Now, in that, he also goes into a description of what's not there. We can see that in verse 22. For example, I saw no temple in it. Now, that's a shift from what we had before. There was a temple. There is a temple in the present heaven. There is no temple needed in the new Jerusalem. No temples in it. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Who do we go to worship anyway? Him. Will He be there? Yes. So we don't need some sort of prop to remind us of who He is. He's there. 
We talk about what the role of the temple was. It had candlesticks. It had a place for the bread, showbread to be put. They had the Holy of Holies. They had the Ark of the Covenant. All of those to remind us of the glory of God and the care of the Lord and the provisions of the Lord. We won't need that there because we have Him. So no need for props. No temple. Verse number 23. No sun or moon. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on them. Now, that would be a shift. We're not used to that, are we? For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. All this description he starts to see. This is what you see. This is what you see. This is what you won't see. This is what won't be there. I like verse number 3 of chapter 22. It's just a little bit ahead, but there will no longer be any curse. Uh, that's going to be beautiful. No longer any curse. Now, he's gone through this description of, of the New Jerusalem, and you have time to read through this later and, and get all the particulars. I'm not going to go verse by verse and, and work them all through here, but uh, this will be the center of our attention, I'm sure, because that's where the Lord dwells. That's where we're going to be focused. It's a place where God will be. Now, don't forget, this is a part of the new heaven and the new earth. They too exist, don't they? And you say, well, why do we need those if we've got this? Well, he has promises to keep, doesn't he? Didn't he promise those to inherit the earth? We talked about that last week. What was this promise to Israel about their land? Isn't that theirs? And when does the promise run out? It never does. So, there is a need for a earth. And promises that will have to be fulfilled. And here's where it gets a little interesting for you. Because on that place called the earth, it says this in verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Alright. Stretch you a little bit. You say, okay, what is this? I, I'm not kidding. A lot of the commentators go real fuzzy right here. They say, our reception's bad. We can't, we can't get the picture. I don't understand what this is. If there is a real earth, and there are People who are saved from every tribe, people, nation, tongue. Is it beyond our God's ability to give them chunks of that earth and say, this is where your nation, now you're a redeemed nation, now you are saved individuals. Can you imagine what that nation would look like all of a sudden? He gives them a chunk of the earth. Dwell on it. Say, okay, well this is kind of different. That's not so uncommon. Where are they going? They're going back to see the Lord constantly, aren't they? Who are they? People who have been saved. They've been through the judgments. They're already in the presence of the Lord. Who's going to live on the earth? Redeemed people. Nations. Even some considered kings. Now, don't let that surprise you. He's going to let David be king of Israel. If Israel's given land on this earth, they're going to be down here, aren't they? Do they have a king? His name is David. He's going to dwell on this earth with these people. 
I think it sounds very interesting. Because the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. There won't be a need to close its gates. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. We don't normally think this way, do we? If we take this all literally, that would mean people live on this earth. So a lot of other questions go with that. What about uh, children? Are they going to build the nations, get bigger? I don't think so. I don't think that's necessary. When you count up the number of saved from all these tribes and peoples and tongues, there's going to be more than enough to populate an earth. He's going to give them something that uh, will be a real treat. Matter of fact, this world will be that where nothing unclean, no one who practices abominations and lines will ever come into it. Now this is a, a picture where the Lord had said earlier in Peter, Second Peter 3, he says he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That means the people on that will be righteous and they will always be righteous. Now, is this a little beyond our ability to comprehend, maybe? Righteous nations on this earth? Righteous nations going up to worship the Lord at His place in the New Jerusalem? All these, these occupants of these places? I don't think it's beyond our God's ability to do it. I think it's big. I think we're going to be stunned by the things we see. But I think if we follow through with a literal passage here then there will have to be nations. And they will have to be here. And they'll have to be on this earth. And they'll have to go to Jerusalem in order to worship Him. And I see these things set before us. I say, okay, that's, that's pretty incredible. But I think that's the reason for a new earth. And a new heaven. Nations of believers regularly attending the worship of the Lord at Jerusalem. Nations of believers with kings to rule over them. Rather big concepts, I know. But do you realize how blessed we are to know the Lord as our Savior? Do we realize that all of this is something that we're going to enjoy forever? In His presence? Forever? We talk about uh, the spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read you a passage as I wrap up some thoughts here. And I want you to think this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, mind you, this is addressed to a group of people uh, called the Corinthians, who might not be your favorite group of people in all the New Testament. They had a ton of problems. And we're not going to study the book or the Corinthians today, but let's consider what was written to them, and, and put this in your thought this morning here. It gets down to the very basics of things. 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men or on the power of God, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom, 
in a mystery, a hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which has not entered the heart of men, all that God has prepared for those who love him. You like that phrase? It gets better. Next verse. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit teaches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man who is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. I love that last phrase. What has he done all this for? As a gift for you? The gift for me. That's incredible. That is just incredible. And I stop and say, thank you, Lord. That you would have thought of me to that degree that this place you have created is a place where I will dwell eternally with you. When's the last time you thanked him for what he is doing, what he's going to do? It's beyond us, I know. But someday we'll see it. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for the glimpse, dear Father. It's, it's not adequate enough for us to try to describe it. It goes beyond that. We, we, can't, uh, we can't fathom it to the fullest extent. But, Lord, it is a necessary view that we need to have. For we live down here on this present earth and we anticipate being in your presence. But Lord, it's far beyond what we could imagine. We thank you, Lord, for showing us that the reality is it does exist. And we will dwell with you forever. In the meantime, as we've been taught in Scripture, how are we supposed to live in conduct and in godliness? We're waiting for this day, Lord. We anticipate it and we're excited about it. In the meantime, help us to live accordingly. We are citizens of that place. May it be seen in our lives, in our actions. May it be seen from the way we, we express our worship to you even. For you are the God we're spending eternity with. Thank you, Lord, for this little glimpse today. I pray you challenge us with it, help us with it, uh, teach us through it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.